You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. And now, a message from Cyberbit. Mastering cybersecurity is like mastering a sport. You build muscle memory through rigorous practice. Then you train as a team to foster cohesion while operating under pressure. Like athletes, cybersecurity professionals thrive on hands-on simulation. But traditional courses, certifications, and open-source labs won't build you a winning team. You need Cyberbit. Cyberbit offers a hyper-realistic simulation environment for your SOC, IR, and C-suite to refine your skills. All using the market-leading SIMs, EDRs, firewalls, and WAFs they use every day. Cyberbit is offering CyberWire listeners a free live-fire exercise. Sign up your team now at cyberbit.com slash cyberwire. Tensions between Britain and Russia remain high as the UK fears a cyber attack. U.S. power utilities are also on alert to an ongoing Russian cyber campaign. Despite a claimed DDoS attack, President Putin is re-elected in Russia. Facebook's under fire for Cambridge Analytica data incidents. More political bots on Twitter. YouTube tries content moderation. The FTC takes on an altcoin Ponzi scheme. The SEC has dozens of ICO investigations in progress. And some notes on the Hal Martin alleged NSA hoarder case. I'm Dave Bittner with your CyberWire summary for Monday, March 19th, 2018. As tensions between Britain and Russia mount, the UK braces for cyber attacks on critical infrastructure, especially its power grid and water supplies. Police in Wiltshire, where the attempted assassination of Sergei Skripal took place, deny that their networks came under Russian attack. Expect more false alarms during this period of heightened tension. The U.S. power industry is similarly preparing itself for attack. The Department of Homeland Security has warned that Russian operators successfully intruded into electrical grid industrial control systems, albeit without working damage in this first stage of their campaign. Direct and official attribution of a cyber operation to a specific named nation-state is unusual in American practice. Cyber attack on power grids are particularly worrisome, especially if they affect industrial control systems in ways that enable attackers to drive to destruction difficult to replace critical components like turbines. Such destruction was shown to be possible, ICS security experts say, by demonstrations like the U.S. Energy Department's Project Aurora. Such attacks could bring down grids for months with great attendant suffering. Commenting on the U.K.'s situation, security experts have offered the sobering, if rather breathless, warning that in the event of complete grid failure, Britain would be, quote, four meals away from anarchy, end quote. A few weeks ago, U.K. Defense Secretary Gavin Williamson warned that such an attack would result in, quote, thousands and thousands and thousands of deaths, end quote. Attacks on power grids are also worrisome because they've actually occurred in the wild, Russia succeeded in producing at least two regional outages in Ukraine over the past three years. Those attacks are widely regarded as trial runs and proof of concept for larger-scale attacks against great power rivals. It's unlikely Russian operators would be able to execute them in exactly that form, 
since utilities elsewhere have learned from Ukraine's experience, but the prospect is worrisome. This is not to say that other risks to power distribution, like the ice storm that's likely to hit the northeastern U.S. this week, aren't much more common and far more likely. It is to say that a nation-state could, if it wished, do widespread and enduring damage far exceeding a society's ability to recover. The U.S. intelligence community is thought to have been aware of Russian cyber activity against electrical utilities for some months. Unofficial warnings go back to last autumn, at least, when Symantec produced research on the activities of Energetic Bear. Some of the operations are thought to go back to 2015. The current campaign against U.S. power utilities is said to be a multi-staged one. No damage to systems or interruption of operations has occurred so far, to anyone's knowledge, but control system data is said to have been exfiltrated. And an important part of the campaign has been spear phishing of electrical utility personnel. Social media continue to struggle through their rough patch as political research firm Cambridge Analytica is found to have obtained Facebook personal information on some 50 million individuals during the last U.S. election cycle. Cambridge Analytica counted the Trump campaign among its clients. Bot-driven fake Twitter accounts may have been used against the Sanders presidential campaign by Democratic operators aligned with candidate Clinton. YouTube is accused of stoking conspiracy theories, most recently with respect to school shootings. The video-sharing platform has sought to address this problem by linking content to relevant Wikipedia pages. Wikipedia itself was surprised by the move, on which it wasn't consulted, and observers are skeptical that such linking is likely to have much effect. And Facebook suffered a brief period last week where its search autocomplete function inexplicably defaulted to adult video queries, apparently tailored to some highly specific tastes, which as a family show we won't further describe. Congress is therefore barking about new regulation of social media. It's especially riled up over the Cambridge Analytical affair, so Facebook seems destined to receive a good deal of unwanted attention from Capitol Hill. Researchers at Georgetown University's Security and Software Engineering Research Center, that's the S2ERC, recently compared the security of desktop and virtual browsers. Paul Brigner is managing director of the S2ERC, and he shares what they found. Our research was really focused on trying to understand the security implications for running a virtual browser or a cloud-based browser, and in particular, a uh, browser-as-a-service type of an option. Um, and that is even different from virtual desktop infrastructures uh, and, of course, clearly different than running a browser on your local machine. Uh, and we really wanted to identify, do you see a big difference when you, you have that isolated cloud-based environment that is particularly focused on helping users overcome security risks? And so take us through, uh, how did you do your research and what did you find? We had these a different variety of operating environments. We had some laptops that we were running uh, the Chrome browser on, and we compared that to a particular cloud-based browser. It's the Authenticate Silo browser that we used in this example. And we identified a number of different uh, sources of malware that we proceeded to download, uh, attempted to download, and determined if, they, if the download was blocked. Um, and in many cases, it was. Um, it was blocked uh, by Chrome in many situations. It was blocked by our, our cloud 
based browser in more situations for sure. So uh, that was a there was an immediate difference in that we did find that the the cloud based virtual browser blocked more of the malware from the beginning. But what was probably even more significant is that after you were able to download some of the malware, uh, and in both cases that was possible in the cloud-based and in the isolated environment, that was completely isolated and limited to that environment, whereas otherwise you would be bringing it down to your desktop and potentially infecting your entire organization. So with the cloud-based uh, version, even when you download a file, that download stays remotely on the cloud, and so it doesn't have the opportunity to infect you locally. Right. And of course, you know, when you take a look at these different types of cloud-based options, there could be an exposure there if there's not a specific focus on limiting this type of threat. Uh, so if you have a regular uh, desktop virtual infrastructure, it could potentially expose the files in that virtual environment to the malware. So I think it, if you focus specifically on trying to create a virtual cloud based uh, desktop environment, um, you still might have some risks. Now, did you take a look at all at uh, just general usability? Were, were there any downsides to running uh, your browser remotely? Any delays when you're running a browser does have an effect on usability. Of course, there's network latency that can be initially a problem. I, what we found is that, and this wasn't part of our study, so we didn't uh, turn this into more of an academic research result, but just in usability, we found that after you use a virtual environment like that, it actually becomes very easy after a short time. I mean, you, there is some kind of a transition that you have to go through, but um, it, it is something that once you're used to, I think you find that the browser in the cloud can even be a better experience for you. Having completed your research here, do you have any recommendations for, for uh, security folks? It almost requires to, to create a secure environment on the web, and it, it requires an entirely different mindset. And that's where this type of virtual browser really comes into play. You honestly, unless you use this type of approach, it's, it's hard to imagine an environment where you're truly safe from threats online. However, when you do move to an, an isolated approach like this, where you're essentially entirely protected and that malware is limited to that virtual environment, you can allow your users to surf the web safely and you, you really don't have those same threats that you're having to deal with. So I think it, it requires a, a change in mindset and that is something that I would recommend for companies and organizations to consider. That's Paul Brigner. He's the Managing Director of the Security and Software Engineering Research Center, the S2ERC, at Georgetown University. Several developing stories involve regulatory enforcement or criminal proceedings. The U.S. Federal Trade Commission is taking action against three defendants who allegedly were running a cryptocurrency Ponzi scheme. The defendants operated as the Bitcoin Funding Team and My7 Network. The U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission has said it's investigating dozens of initial coin offerings, and the value of Ether has dropped accordingly, falling below $500. And the government will not have such a difficult burden of proof to bear in the trial of accused NSA hoarder Hal Martin. The prosecution will not, after all, have to show that Mr. Martin knew the contents of 20 specific documents investigators found in his Glen Burnie, Maryland shed, and knew that they were classified. 
it will be enough to show that he knew he had a bunch of classified stuff. As Judge Garbus put it, quote, proof that the defendant knew he was wrongfully retaining the mass of stolen documents is sufficient to satisfy the government's willfulness mens rea obligation under the Espionage Act if the government can prove that the specified charged documents were in the mass of documents taken and wrongfully retained, end quote. Russia's Central Election Commission says it sustained DDoS attacks over the weekend from 15 countries. The attacks didn't affect the outcome of the presidential election, neither perhaps did the votes people cast, which makes one wonder how even a successful distributed denial-of-service attack would have made much difference. Exit polls Sunday show President Putin returned to office with a commanding 74%. Who saw that coming? Mr. Putin also announced his 2030 candidacy, perhaps in jest, but perhaps not. In 2030, he'll be a spry 77, so why not? And finally, reporting a problem we confess we don't have, the Rosen Group reports that late-model yachts are coming off the slipways with easily compromised routers. Thurston and Lovey Howell take note, especially before you embark on any three-hour tours. Every day, your IAM tech debt grows. Your multi-generational services struggle to work together. Building an identity fabric can fix this. It makes all your identity tooling stronger and allows you to connect any app to any service you want to use. With zero coding, zero maintenance, and zero app downtime. Strata's identity orchestration platform separates the identity logic from your applications, so you can optimize existing IAM tools and manage them in a single control plane. Now, every vendor, standard, and architecture work together. In short, building your identity fabric means you can secure your non-standard apps, keep your complex access policies, retire outdated IDPs, and modernize in record time. So build your fabric with Strata Identity and get rid of tech debt for good. Visit strata.io slash cyberwire, share your identity priorities, and receive a pair of AirPods Pro. Offer valid for organizations over 5,000 employees. Connect today at strata.io slash cyberwire. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. And joining me once again is Malek Ben-Salem. She is the R&D Manager for Security at Accenture Labs. She's also a New America Cybersecurity Fellow. Malek, welcome back. You know, you and I have talked previously about getting ready for deployment of cryptography and some of the challenges there. And today you wanted to share some tips for the, sort of the short-term preparation for that sort of thing. What can you share with us today? 
Yeah, sure. So last time we talked about um, the threat that quantum computers pose to uh, the way we encrypt our data to the classical cryptography, right? We know that uh, Shor's algorithm, for example, can be used for quantum factorization and can be applied to solve discrete logarithm problems. What that means is that it can break asymmetric standard algorithms. Well, that means also that it can break RSA, elliptic curve, etc. So one of the questions that I got from uh, one of my clients was about, does it make sense to invest in fixing a poorly implemented public key infrastructure if it can be hacked with quantum computers anyway? Hmm. And the answer is yes, absolutely. It's always worthwhile in investing in your PKI because that's what's going to prepare you to be able to upgrade to quantum safe uh, algorithms in the future. And in particular, what you need to focus on is understanding or identifying whether all of your critical applications are working with certificates. Identifying which certification authorities, whether internal or external, are responsible for issuing those certificates. Having a process for updating cryptographic principles. Making sure that your key up cycle is up to date. Making sure that your certificate validation is up to date. And also assessing how the renewal of a certification authority would influence your organization. So in summary, what you need to do is basically review your entire key management to build a clean, detailed and verified key management for your uh, PKI. Obviously, you need to protect your keys, ideally in hardware security modules. In that process, you may need to increase the length of your keys. Uh, for symmetrical keys, we recommend 256 bits in order to be quantum safe. Uh, for RSA, at least 3072 bits. And then you need to document that entire process and you should be well prepared for the future. Now, is this the, the type of thing where when you're talking to your clients, do you find most people are up to date on this or people tend to be lagging behind? Many people are lagging, at least in terms of having an entire inventory of what those applications are, what are the communication channels are, and what's the uh, certification update cycle or validation cycle. So it's really a case of uh, doing the work now so you can be proactive about it rather than being exactly. reactive uh, if and when um, the quantum uh, computers uh, become practical. Exactly. All right. Well, Malek Ben Salam, as always, thanks for joining us. Thank you, David. Are lengthy security reviews pulling attention away from your security program? With the largest network of trust centers, Vanta can help you streamline security reviews to win customer trust, save time, and close deals fast. Proactively demonstrate security by showcasing key resources like your SOC 2 or ISO 27001 and provide real-time evidence for passing controls. And when a security questionnaire is required, Vanta takes the first pass for you. Visit vanta.com cyber to take a self-serve tour. That's vanta.com slash cyber. And that's the Cyberwire. For links to all of today's stories, check out our daily briefing at thecyberwire.com. And for professionals and cybersecurity leaders who want to stay abreast of this rapidly evolving field, sign up for Cyberwire Pro. 
It'll save you time and keep you informed. Listen for us on your Alexa smart speaker, too. The CyberWire podcast is proudly produced in Maryland out of the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our amazing CyberWire team is Elliot Peltzman, Peru Prakash, Stefan Vaziri, Kelsey Vaughn, Tim Nodar, Joe Kerrigan, Carol Terrio, Ben Yellen, Nick Vilecki, Gina Johnson, Bennett Moe, Chris Russell, John Petrick, Jennifer Iben, Rick Howard, Peter Kilpie, and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. We'll see you back here tomorrow. And now, a word from our sponsor, Zscaler, the leader in cloud security. Cyber attackers are using AI in creative ways to compromise users and breach organizations. In a security landscape where you must fight AI with AI, the best AI protection comes from having the best data. Zscaler has extended its zero-trust architecture with powerful AI engines that are trained and tuned by 500 trillion daily signals. Learn more about Zscaler Zero Trust plus AI to prevent ransomware and AI attacks. Experience your world secured. Visit zscaler.com slash zero trust AI.